Good evening. So now we've been here on retreat together for three full days. We've had enough time perhaps to start to recognize the interplay of these four aspects of being on retreat that we've been highlighting in the retreat theme. The interplay of rest and renewal and resilience and release. So hopefully by now you're feeling a bit more rested. And from that there's a sense of being more refreshed or maybe some kind of renewal. And with that new energy, the Dharma can do its work more easily in terms of strengthening our resilience or non-resistance. And that resilience allows a deeper letting go, letting be into various experiences of release. So in the practice meetings, the individual practice meetings so far, Julie and I, we've been hearing how many of you have been describing at least some moments of clear seeing and how that understanding supports at least some degree of calm and quiet and ease and happiness and peace. So we want to acknowledge and appreciate those moments as the benefits of your relaxed but diligent practice It's also important to acknowledge that inevitably there are also some moments, maybe quite a few moments, that are not those things. So in the practice meetings we've also been hearing descriptions alongside those new understandings of all kinds of less pleasant experiences. So it's definitely not all smooth sailing. And I want to emphasize that this is completely normal, natural, to be expected. And I want to emphasize this because most of us have a pretty strong tendency to equate pleasant experiences with good meditation. And the opposite, to equate unpleasant experiences with bad meditation. So when our experience is unpleasant or painful we tend to assume that we're doing something wrong and then we get caught up in a struggle to get back to those pleasant experiences that we were having this morning or yesterday or on my last retreat or maybe on my first retreat ten years ago. (laughs) So maybe some of you recognize that syndrome. And on an intellectual level at least, you recognize that it leads to more suffering. Even so, it's not an easy pattern to undo, and it takes training to see it clearly. So in the relational practice yesterday, we started to explore the role of Vedana, feeling tone, how when that's not recognized for what it is, it so easily kick-starts a whole chain reaction that pulls us into painful mind state. And then we often make those worse by taking them personally, and inadvertently make them more solid and more permanent than they actually are. So just very briefly, in terms of working with these afflictive states, if they have come up, the first step is to recognize that they're impermanent and they're impersonal. They arise due to conditions. They're not me, they're not mine, 
They're not who I am. And they're not my fault. They are just arising due to conditions. And as I suggested in the relational practice yesterday, we can experiment with how we relate to those uh, painful states internally. We can experiment with depersonalizing our inner language that we use in relation to them. So just for example, instead of perhaps telling yourself, oh, I'm such a resistant person, I hate this, I'm so angry, how come no one ever respects me and I always end up in this situation? Or whatever version of your favorite narrative, you can put that in there. And instead of that narrative, you can try softening the language to simply acknowledge without personal pronouns. Okay, unpleasant feeling tones being known, familiar story coming up, yes, anger is here, anger feels like this, not liking it is like this, knowing energy moving through, hmm, it's okay. Subsiding slightly. Ah, moment of relief is like this. So hopefully you hear the difference, even in that relatively simple example, taking out the personalizing tendency and just knowing the experience more directly in the body, staying out of the narrative as best we can, can help release the distress of it. Now, it might sound simple and easy, but for all of us, there are times when mindfulness isn't up to the job, and some of those more entrenched afflictive patterns can start to get their claws into us. So we might be sitting innocently, just watching the flow of different mental activity. We'll just settle back and knowing thoughts and emotions, moods and mind states coming up coming and going, and then out of nowhere, one particular thought drifts into consciousness, and for whatever reason, that particular thought hooks us, we take the bait, and yep, that's me, that's mine, that's who I am, that's how it is, that's absolutely true, and then we get attacked by a bout of mental proliferation, which amplifies all the other painful emotions and then our capacity to see clearly is totally undermined. And usually we end up stuck in a phase of misery for quite some time. So if you happen to find this happening to you pretty repeatedly, it might be a sign that mindfulness isn't yet quite strong enough to meet the strength of that pattern. And we're fortunate then that we can try a different approach. We can try turning towards the distress very directly, acknowledging the pain of it, and bringing in the heart quality of compassion to help soothe it. So in this way, we're using the tools from our insight toolkit together with the tools from the Brahma Vihara practices, 
which Julie introduced this afternoon, where she uh, began with guiding us in metta meditation. So this evening I'd like to continue that exploration and to focus on the second of these four Dhanavaharas, which is compassion. Because compassion has a very direct relationship with dukkha. Dukkha being stress, distress, pain, suffering. And in one way or another, everything the Buddha taught is about how to relate more skillfully to dukkha, to help it release on deeper and deeper levels. And compassion is a very powerful tool to help us do just that. So first then, let's look at how does compassion fit into our overall path of practice. As many of you know, in the later development of the Buddhist tradition, this path is sometimes spoken of in terms of the two wings to awakening. And these two wings are wisdom and compassion. And we can understand very directly from that metaphor that we need both wings to be equally well developed if we're going to metaphorically fly. So wisdom is the ability to see clearly, to develop insight, which is mostly what we've been focusing on so far during this retreat. And compassion is the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness and care, and, whenever possible, to help that suffering to release. So you might recognize from that definition that there's a close relationship between metta, the first of the Brahma-Vihara, and compassion, the second. So sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? We can think of metta as being the foundation heart quality that the other three Brahma-Vihara spring from. So metta is a kind of generalized or even generic goodwill. Goodwill, kindness, friendliness. And when this basic quality of goodwill turns towards pain, stress, distress, suffering, it flowers as compassion. So compassion has a specific orientation towards dukkha of all kinds. And because of this, it's harder to misuse it as a strategy to avoid unpleasantness. So I mention this because sometimes metta can be unconsciously used as a way to try to distance ourselves from painful emotions such as anger or grief. And it took me a while in my own practice to realize that I had been doing that. So early on, some kind of painful emotion would come up and I'd unconsciously try to meta-bomb it out of existence. Mm -hmm. So I'd be sitting in meditation saying, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. But what I was really saying was, I hate this, get it away from me, make it stop, make it go away, ASAP. So what I was doing was trying to obliterate the painful emotions with a salve of loving-kindness. Sometimes that gave me a little bit of short-term relief, but eventually 
I always had to face into or face up to those more deep and difficult feelings so that I could experience a deeper and more lasting freedom. And this is where compassion can be so powerful because it's harder to cheat with than metta. It invites us to get up close, to feel, to know that pain very directly. Not as an exercise in masochism, but as a means to help it release. Now just to acknowledge for most of us, this strategy is, at least at first, pretty deeply counterintuitive. As human beings, we're to some extent hardwired to try to avoid pain wherever possible. And so because of compassion's close association with pain, many people have a strong and often quite unconscious resistance to doing compassion practice. And I think many many of us came to the Dharma in the first place to try to get away from suffering, to heal suffering. So to hear that the Four Noble Truths are asking us to get closer to Dukkha can be quite discouraging, maybe even induce doubt. Inevitably though, no matter how hard we might try to avoid it, There are times in life and on this path where pain comes up. And when it does, it can be very easy to fall into the trap of believing that we did something wrong, either that we did something wrong, or there's something wrong with the practice itself. And so coming into contact with pain, it can often reveal our unconscious escape strategies and our unconscious beliefs about what this path is supposed to do, what, how it's supposed to unfold, and what kind of experiences we think should or shouldn't be happening. So again, early on in my own practice, I had a pretty deeply unconscious belief that if I just sat on my cushion and meditated long enough and hard enough and deep enough, I'd find some kind of metaphorical eject button And that would blast me out of all of my messy, painful, emotional, psychological and relational issues. And I'd be on this kind of pink cloud called Nibbana, where I'd live happily ever after. (coughs) Well, spoiler alert. (laughs) It didn't turn out like that. And the downside of having that unconscious model in my mind was I had a lot of resistance to any sense that this path is not about just trying to get calm and quiet and peaceful and hang out there forever, as if that was even possible. Instead, this path is about developing a wiser and a more compassionate relationship to the myriad forms of dukkha that can happen in our lives. So in other words, the only way out is through. Or another of my favorite slogans, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. It can show us where and what and how we are resisting. So compassion practice can bring us face to face with our own personal and individual conditioning. 
but and also face to face with our society wide conditioning. Because I think, generally speaking, at least in our dominant Western culture, does not value compassion or any of the heart qualities very much at all. And if we look at the state of the world right now, we could say it feels like we're in the midst of an epidemic of non-compassion, of cruelty, on a global scale, a planet-wide scale. And perhaps partly because of mainstream society's tendency towards perfectionism and competitiveness and domination, for many people, even just the idea of cultivating compassion can be pretty foreign, even threatening. So we're fortunate that the Buddha didn't just say, be compassionate and then leave it at that. He gave us actual practices that we can do to gradually cultivate this beautiful heart quality. So how do we actually practice compassion as a Brahma-Vihara meditation? So in the insight tradition that we're part of, usually it's done pretty similar to metta. So the traditional method is silently reciting phrases that we offer to different categories of people, similar to the way we did it this afternoon with Julie. In the case of compassion, the phrases we use, instead of just being general phrases of kindness, they phrases acknowledge suffering and the wish to be free from it. And I want to highlight the second aspect of compassion, the wish to relieve suffering. Because sometimes compassion is presented as simply empathy, as the heart that vibrates in response to another's pain. And that is an aspect of compassion. But in the Buddhist tradition, there's an underlying orientation to the relief of that suffering, wherever possible. Wherever possible, we do what we can to help ease or even release that pain. And it's the interplay of feeling with and the imagining of relief that can help protect us from empathy burnout or compassion fatigue. So just an example of traditional compassion phrase, may you be free from your suffering. Very simple, may you be free from your suffering. And traditionally, unlike with metta practice, just one phrase tends to be used. And this one phrase is repeated over and over in relation to different categories of beings who are experiencing pain. And then as we're touching into that suffering, we're also noticing any responses, any reactivity in our own hearts and minds and keep turning towards the aspiration to be free from suffering. So that's more or less the standard way that we would do it. In my own practice, I found that using just one standard phrase, may you be free from your suffering, it somehow just didn't get traction for me. And at times I couldn't get past the resistance to turning towards suffering. And then it was hard to more deeply settle into the heart quality, the felt sense of the compassion. 
So I developed my own set of phrases. There are four of them. And I thought just to share them now and explain a little bit about how I use them in case they might be relevant for you. So the phrases I came up with are, I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. And may I know peace. So I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release. May I know peace. And we can shorten that even to just aware, care, release, peace. So I came up with these phrases as a way to help soften some of the difficulties that I experienced when I was trying to do compassion practice. And the first two phrases, they are intended to just show any resistance to being with the pain. And then the last two phrases provide a reminder that the purpose is to move beyond the pain. So the first phrase, I'm aware of this pain, it's a kind of a test. I would say that to myself, I'm aware of this pain. And to see, is there a willingness to acknowledge it? And sometimes the answer was a giant neon no. (laughs) I do not want to be aware of this pain. But this is useful information because unless I can recognize that resistance, I can't do anything to soften it. And depending on the intensity of the resistance, if it's super strong, then wisdom might discern that actually it's not the right time to be doing compassion practice at this point. There might be some other kind of practice I need to do first before I'm ready. So the second phrase, I care about this pain, it's also a kind of a test. Is that true? Do I care about it or do I just want it to go away? Am I kind of practicing compassion in a sort of bargaining? Okay, I'll do compassion practice if it'll get rid of this pain. And so that invitation, I care about this pain. Again, if we meet strong resistance or aversion, that might be a signal that we need to take this very slowly and gradually. So perhaps we agree to tune into the pain for 10 seconds. That's all. And then after 10 seconds, we move our attention somewhere else to something neutral or maybe pleasant. And that can help protect us from getting overwhelmed by the pain. So if it's done with mindfulness, that will be an example of right effort, balanced effort. On the other hand, again, if there's a very clear lack of care about the pain, then it might be more skillful to literally or metaphorically just, okay, bow out, return to mindfulness of breathing for a while, or maybe even do some walking meditation or have a cup of tea or do whatever you can to come back to balance. The point is that we try to choose whatever we choose to do with as much consciousness as possible. So what we're trying to do is gently expand our capacity to be with Dukkha. Because trying to force ourselves out of our comfort zones is actually a subtle form of violence. And it's completely counterproductive. 
So if we are finding ourselves in that terrain, then generally it's better to take a strategic withdrawal, move away from what's difficult for a while, give our nervous system time to come back to balance, and to find that resilience that we've been emphasizing in this retreat. Then the third phrase, may this pain release, is a reminder that compassion practice, it's not a masochistic kind of suffering for the sake of suffering. And it's not just empathy. If all we're doing is just feeling fully into another person's pain, then it's very easy for this to slide into what's known as the near enemy of compassion. And the near enemy of compassion is sorrow, grief, overwhelm. So to help prevent sliding into this near enemy, the compassion needs to be supported by wisdom so that we can stay balanced in the face of our own or the other person's distress. And this balance comes about through mindfulness. So all through this practice, even though it's nominally a Brahma-Vihara practice, it needs to be supported by mindfulness in the sense of tuning in to what's happening in the body, the heart, the mind. And as we have been doing, noticing our relationship to this experience. So in some ways, mindfulness is a type of whole body listening. We settle back and receive the experience. And then out of that deep listening, we're more able to intuit a skillful response. So later on in the Buddhist tradition, the link between listening and compassion became more explicit in the image of Kuan Yin. And we have a couple of Kuan Yins up here. Thank you to whoever brought them along. So Kuan Yin is the archetypal embodiment of compassion in the later Buddhist tradition. And she's sometimes known as she who hears the cries of the world. She who hears the cries of the world. And in some Zen traditions it said she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body. Which is quite a striking image. And I think it's important to keep in mind that she doesn't just listen. She's also ready to do whatever's necessary to relieve suffering. So in some of the traditional sculptures of Kuan Yin, she's often shown sitting in a specific posture. I'll see if I can demonstrate it. You may have seen she's sitting like this. Half her body is in meditation, and the other half is poised and ready to spring into action. So there's that beautiful balance of receptivity and activity just in the way she's embodied So we can think of compassion as a practice of listening, of tuning in, and sensing into our own capacity for compassion, no matter how faint it might seem at first. So in my own compassion practice, there was a significant turning point when I realized that this is not about trying to manufacture or conjure up compassion out of nowhere. 
It's more about listening to what's actually already there. Because compassion is a natural state of the heart and mind when it's not obscured by the visiting afflictive states. So when I understood this, I sometimes thought of the Hubble telescope. Now, I'm not very technologically inclined, but my understanding back then and might not be totally accurate, but my understanding is that the Hubble telescope is kind of beaming out into the furthest reaches of the universe and looking for signs of life. And at times I felt like I was turning that kind of Hubble telescope in towards my own heart, into the deepest, darkest spaces of my heart. And trying to recognize if there's even the faintest flicker of warmth. And so as the metaphorical compassion antenna gets more sensitive, we can recognize that signal, amplify it, bring it more directly into consciousness so that it can fill more of the heart and the mind. And as it does it becomes more and more possible to taste moments of openness and ease and acceptance, even in the midst of pain and difficulty. So the fourth compassion phrase, may I know peace, reminds us of this possibility. Sometimes we might help ourselves in, in that direction, by just taking a moment to imagine ourselves living without that particular pain or stress or distress. We can even drop in the question, what might it feel like to truly know peace? And we can experiment with visualizing being temporarily free of that dukkha. Attuning to that potential peace as vividly as we can getting an immediate felt sense of what that experience might be like. Okay, so that's a brief overview of those four compassion phrases and how I've um, developed them in my own practice. But I want to emphasize that it still has been and it still is a practice. It's not some kind of magic mantra and we just recite it a few times and the pain just disappears. As I'm sure you all know from your own experience, being with suffering is not easy. It's natural that it brings up all kinds of resistance and reactivity. And we need to learn how to navigate these if the compassion is going to become more genuine. So I'd like to just touch into some of the common challenges that come up when we, can, when we start trying to develop this quality. So for me, it was a relief to hear that compassion, in fact, all four of the Brahma-Vahara practices are sometimes euphemistically referred to as purification practices. And this means that they're designed to show us what gets in the way. So if we sit down to try to cultivate compassion and we find ourselves wriggling with restlessness or bored out of our brains or lost in fantasy or swamped by grief or completely numb and shut down, this is part of the practice. 
It's not that something has gone wrong. It's the practice showing us where we have some work to do. So if we recognize some of those reactions, we try to meet them with as much kind curiosity as we can so that we don't inadvertently strengthen the afflictive states by piling on self-judgment and aversion. So speaking of afflictive states, specifically in relation to compassion, there's one very common obstacle that comes up often, and that's fear. Now again, partly because of our biology and that being hardwired to some extent to avoiding things that are painful, it's not surprising that we have an instinctual fear of moving towards difficulty. And most people, unless they have some meditation training, most people spend a lot of energy, consciously or unconsciously, trying to avoid feeling any kind of painful experiences whatsoever. And most people develop all kinds of strategies to do that. Most of those strategies might give some temporary relief, but in the longer term they're often quite harmful. So on an obvious level, all the different kinds of addictions that we have these days are symptoms of that misguided attempt to avoid pain. Now even if we don't currently meet the official criteria of addiction, most of us still have all kinds of ways that we're consciously or unconsciously trying to not go anywhere near some of these inner pains. And generally speaking, the avoidance of suffering underlies a lot of our unskillful behavior, both individually and as a society. So it's important to avoid judgment here because probably very few of us, I don't know your ages, but maybe none of us were taught as children how to relate skillfully to our emotional lives and specifically to painful experiences. Some of you here might be relatively young, but I think still it's too recent that mindfulness has been started to be more widely taught in schools. There are more mindfulness trainings, there are programs in some schools to help kids develop emotional literacy. But I think for most of us here, those weren't available when we were growing up. So in some ways we're playing catch-up now. And we're fortunate here to have an opportunity to train in skills that we might have missed out on earlier. And compassion practice is a very powerful way that we can start that training. So it's very common to have this reflex to avoid suffering. But sometimes people come into meditation and hear that and they think, okay, well, I should be going to the other extreme and I should be diving into my deepest, darkest trauma and staying there because anything less than that is somehow cheating or avoidance. But hopefully you recognize that this is not a skillful response either because usually means we end up getting overwhelmed, which only strengthens the fear of the pain. So remembering that there are two wings to awakening. Compassion always needs to be supported by wisdom. 
And in relation to this, we need to bring in the wisdom of the middle way. So this is the Buddha's teachings on the need to find balance between extremes of any kind. So the middle way is a good antidote to perhaps our more habitual and binary approach to things, where we tend to bring an all-or-nothing attitude, and that one usually adds to our suffering. Instead, the middle way is inviting us to train in slowly and gradually developing the inner resources to be with our pain without drowning in it. So this is the resilience aspect. It's the capacity, sort of like bamboo, to bend, not break. Just as bamboo flexes in response to the wind, it doesn't crack doesn't get uprooted because it has that elasticity, that resilience. So the middle way means that we take care not to force this process. Because if, when, we've been deeply hurt, again, it can be almost a kind of violence to try to force ourselves to open the heart again too quickly or in the wrong circumstances. We need to respect that the heart closes for a reason and not demand that it opens again before it's genuinely ready. So a few years ago on retreat I was exploring this rhythm of the heart, feeling like it was opening and closing. And as I was going through all these different cycles during the retreat, an image came to mind of sea anemones. You know those little marine creatures that live in rock pools? They're like blobs of jelly with tentacles. And I remembered being a kid and growing up in Scotland at the time. And we would go on family holidays to the beach and at low tide we'd go exploring all of the rock pools. And as a little kid I was fascinated to see these multicolored sea anemones. They were red and brown, orange jelly-like blobs with those amazing translucent tentacles and the tentacles would sway in the currents in the pools. And my father showed me how if I reached down and just touched the tentacles, they would react, retract and the sea anemone would become just this blob of jelly. And as a five-year-old, I thought this was magic. I wanted to know, why do they do that? And later I found out that they do it to stay safe. So when their tentacles are retracted, they're safe. But they can't feed. So at some point, the tentacles have to open up again. And in some ways, the human heart is like that. It alternates between periods of needing to be safe and needing to feed. And it's vulnerable to find nourishment. So as a human, more than a sea anemone, what allows us to be vulnerable is our capacity for self-compassion. Vulnerability means that we're willing to risk getting hurt because we know that we have the inner capacity to cope with that pain if it does happen. 
So self-compassion allows us to move beyond our limiting beliefs about who we are and how the world is. And yet for many people, it's extremely challenging. Again, self-aversion and self-loathing are so common, so widespread these days. And so for most people, we need to have a lot of patience for ourselves if we choose to move into what for many is pretty unfamiliar terrain. So just to normalize how challenging it can be, a few years ago I read a short paper by Paul Gilbert, and he's a psychologist who works in the field of self-compassion. He's done a lot of research there. And he, he wrote about the challenges that many people face when they try to develop more warmth and kindness for themselves. So he says, Commonly, for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent, or not deserved. And this usually indicates the fear of experiencing self-compassion. Exploration might reveal that the person is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable. And others think that they'll be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So he's just pointing to some of the common patterns that can come up as we start to cultivate self-compassion. And just to recognize that the resistance can be strong and try to do what we can to train very patiently and gradually. And in working with students and myself early on, at times it can be hard. One of the first obstacles can be just trying to find phrases for compassion that feel authentic. If there's been a long history of self-loathing, for example, just the standard words can at times make us want to gag. And so if you're finding the words are difficult, then you might want to experiment and choose your own phrases. And I've shared before the example of working with one student who really found this difficult. And they said they just couldn't find words that felt authentic or made sense. So we started playing around together to see if we could find words that might work. And eventually we came up with a set of phrases that sounded something like this. May I be willing at some point in the future to have the intention to eventually move in the direction of beginning to cultivate some degree of compassion towards myself. <laughs> so it was something like that that they came up with. And they agreed to say that three times in the morning before they got out of bed. And we might laugh, but even that amount of intentionality makes a difference. So we, be, we can be creative with the phrases that we use, or don't use, because we don't have to use phrases. For some people, a more embodied form of 
self-compassion is more accessible. So just a simple gesture when we recognize some pain, like just momentarily putting a hand on the heart, or taking a moment to breathe more fully as we feel our feet in contact with the ground, that can help to soothe the nervous system. So each of us, we can find our own ways of orienting to compassion in a more embodied way. And each time we remember to do this, even if it's only for a nanosecond, we're making it easier for compassion to arise again in the future. This is because of the understanding of neural plasticity. So in modern science terms, that's the understanding that our minds can be shaped by what and how we think. The Buddha understood that this too, that with our thoughts we make the world. So whether we're aware of it or not, every one of us, even right now, is strengthening certain tendencies in the mind and at the same time reducing other tendencies. So the practice is trying to strengthen the beneficial tendencies and denourish the harmful ones. So that over time, these Brahma-viharas become more and more the default setting in our hearts and minds. Now, perhaps at first this might seem like a painfully slow process. And we might feel discouraged and be tempted to discount the value of spending a few minutes a day trying to orient towards kindness and compassion. But there are a few lines in the Dhammapada that point to the value of patiently staying with this process. It says, Think not lightly of good, saying, It will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. So drop by drop is the water pot filled. And we can think of that process in terms of compassion. Even if at first you don't feel anything at all, even if it seems like you're just mechanically reciting phrases, things feel dry as dust, it is still worth doing because you're cultivating the intention to develop compassion. Drop by drop, like water dripping onto limestone. So if you imagine water dripping onto limestone, each individual drop, it might not seem like anything is happening. But gradually the action of the water is seeping in, and it can open up a tiny crack in even the most biggest block of limestone. And then a seed can lodge there, and that seed can develop into a seedling. And eventually that seedling turns into a huge tree. We don't know exactly when that might happen. But every one of us here already has seen changes in our capacity to care. So drop by drop, that capacity to care for others, care for ourselves, is growing. And although in the context of a silent retreat like this, it might seem like we're practicing mostly for our own benefit, the more we do this for ourselves, the more possible it becomes 
to meet the suffering of our own families and our communities and the world with the same compassion. And our practice starts to shift from being initially self-centered to other-centered, or perhaps more accurately to non-centered, because the distinction between self and other weakens, times even disappears. So later on in the Buddhist tradition, this fusion of wisdom and compassion, it became more explicit through the development of the bodhisattva ideal. And the bodhisattva is someone who takes a vow to postpone their own freedom so that they can help others find their way out of suffering too. And whether or not this vow, this ideal resonates for any of us personally, we might still connect with the underlying understanding that all of this effort that we're making here is of benefit not only to we ourselves, but everyone in our that we come into contact with. So to get a sense of the profound potential of compassion, I'd like to close with a few of my favorite lines from Shantideva in his treatise, The Bodhicharya Vatara, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And this is a Tibetan text. It's one that apparently His Holiness the Dalai Lama reads every day. It's a whole book, but I'll read just a few lines So it says, May I be a protector to those without protection, a leader for those who journey, and a boat, a bridge, a passage for those desiring the further shore. May I be the doctor and the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. May the pain of every living creature be completely cleared away. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit in silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.